Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. And before um, you guys, you know, think poorly on me for giving weight uh, a passage to read with terrible names in it, mine has more terrible names. So <laughs> I actually was being very nice to wait in giving him Job. So this is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments." Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will pay him back for his deeds. You also must be aware of him, for he has strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to support me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. One of my favorite stories that my mom tells about me as a baby involves uh, shoes. So as the story goes, I was maybe like three months old, four months old, and my mom was getting me dressed to go somewhere. You know, clean diaper, clean outfit, socks and shoes. We're all set when suddenly I just fully lose it. Crying, screaming, meltdown. Now, it's worth mentioning, just for context, uh, that I was a very easy baby. Um, I was sleeping through the night early, super low-key. I mean, I I still am, really. No one is surprised. Um, So my mom, she's, she's trying to figure out what it is that I need. You know, she checks my diaper. She tries to feed me. She feels my head for some sudden onset fever. Nothing and I cannot be consoled. She starts to get a little panicked, and I can imagine her fussing over me, asking again and again, what's wrong? What do you need? And of course, I can't tell her, but it is clear that something is wrong. Finally, at a loss uh, of what else to do, mom starts to strip me out of my clothes, and she discovers when she pulls off my shoes that the little toe on one of my feet had gotten bent back and was essentially like flush with the side of my foot. Once that pressure was off my toe and with a little soothing from my mom, I went back to being the perfectly content and lovely baby that I was. Um, And there was no permanent damage done to my little toe. And I have, in the last 35 years, gotten a little, if only a little, bit better at communicating what it is that I need. And that is the question that we've been meaning to ask this morning. What do you need? As Pastor Amanda said, we all have needs from that basic need to breathe, to the need for connection, to the ultimate need for self-actualization. And our two passages this morning, though different, are both about needs, about having them met, and about expressing what it is that we need. We meet Job freshly experiencing a terrible uh, trauma, an immense loss. I'm sure many of you are at least a little bit familiar with Job's story, the righteous man whose life is torn apart right in front of him. All of his livestock, servants, and children are killed, and then he's struck with a terrible illness, 
Scripture tells us that he was covered with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. So, so Job is in anguish. It is a grief, I imagine, that is without words. So Job is, is sitting in the ashes with no family, no source of income, and Scripture says that he is scraping the sores off his body with a ceramic shard when his friends arrive. And their reaction, it feels appropriate. They don't recognize him. They weep and they tear their clothes. They meet Job in his despair. Now, Job hasn't asked for anything. To this point in the story, Job has expressed no needs. Perhaps he's unsure of what he needs or he can't bring himself to verbalize it. Who can say? Regardless, Job's friends come to see him. The text makes a point to give us the name of each friend, a name and a tribe or country of origin. And while I am certain that there is a deep or metaphorical meaning to their name, what it communicates to me is that they have come from a distance. They have traveled to be with their friend. Without the benefit of social media or a church-wide prayer list to keep casual tabs on their network, if they wanted to support their friend, they had to get up and go. And in this moment, they have nothing to offer Job other than solidarity. Showing up when your friend is grieving is perhaps the greatest gift that you can offer. There is nothing that these three men can do or say to fix Job's circumstances, nothing that will bring back all of the things that he has lost, but they can be present. As someone in the Monday morning Bible study said, when you have nothing, good friends are a pretty good place to start. And these good friends, they meet him where he is. It is such a simple but powerful thing. Pastor and author Nadia Bowles-Weber says that the most powerful spiritual gift is presence, just the willingness to be in it with someone. I think we often get stuck in trying to figure out how to care for others. We don't know what they need. We don't know how to ask for what they need. We're afraid we're going to say the wrong thing. But often, really, all you need to do is show up, and that requires no special training. In the spring of this year, um, I was in a, a car accident trying to turn into my driveway, and no one was hurt, um, but my car was totaled. And so I was standing on the sidewalk, checking on the other driver, waiting for the police, texting my friends to cancel my plans for the afternoon, pulling up my insurance so I could start a claim. I had not processed a single feeling. I could not have vocalized what I needed. If you would have asked me in that moment what it was I needed, I'm almost sure that I would have said nothing because I am fine. And then um, I just happened to turn around and there walking up my condo complex driveway was Hillary McNeil. Um, and when I saw her, well, so let me say this, it was completely by coincidence that Hillary showed up. Uh, she had been driving by the street that I live on and saw the car and saw me and turned around and came to be with me. And when I saw her, I knew exactly what it was I needed, and that was to not be alone. Um, and I'm not ashamed to say that when I saw Hillary, I did uh, weep openly. Um, and Hillary, she just hugged me while I cried, and she stood with me while I waited. She made sure I got my valuables out of my car before it was towed away. She was with me until it was over and until backup arrived so that I could continue to not be alone. Hillary, she checked on me afterwards. Uh, and I don't know how I would have gotten through that day, that afternoon, without her. 
And truly, all of that comfort and all of that help, just because she happened to be driving by and stopped. Certainly, I'm not comparing myself to Joe, but I know what it feels like to have someone show up for you. But then, but then we have Paul, right? And Paul's needs are different. Well, his situation and his expression of needs are different. Paul is, Paul is in prison. Uh, he, had got, he had been traveling, starting and supporting churches, spreading the gospel when he got on the wrong side of the empire. So now he's under house arrest and he's nearing the end of his life and he knows it. So he has no problem expressing what it is he needs. In his letter, he tells Timothy to come quickly. Everyone else has abandoned him. So what Paul really needs is companionship. He needs his team to be with him. He, not unlike Job, needs his friends to show up for him. So he tells Timothy to get the supplies, gather the people that we trust, avoid the people that we don't, and get here. Now, when I read Job and Paul back to back, it's hard not to compare the two of them. And standing next to Job, who is suffering in silence with his friends uh, beside him, Paul seems, like, pushy. (laughs) And I'm not the only one who thinks so. The Monday morning Bible study agreed with me. They, feel, they all agree that Paul feels kind of like cringy in this passage. He has this perceived assertiveness, this direct way of asking for things that is almost off-putting. And it's interesting to me how easy it is to understand Job and to praise his friends, and then how easy it is to bristle at Paul's directness. I would wager perhaps that it's because we aren't so great at asking for what we need. We don't know how to be needy. We would do much better if help just appeared out of thin air like Hillary or like Job's friends and we never had to ask for anything. And why do you you think that is, right? Why do we hesitate to ask for what it is we need? Maybe we just don't want to seem needy. We don't particularly like needy people. Needy is like a negative adjective that we give to people. You know, maybe we think our problems aren't as big as someone else's, so we shouldn't complain. You know, my stressful job that is causing strain in my family isn't as bad as someone who can't find a job and feed their family, so I'll just keep it to myself and keep pushing. Everyone else is so busy, and I would hate to bother them, so I'll just drive myself to the hospital. We minimize our needs and our concerns and our pains so as not to be a bother to which I would say our problems don't need to be weighted against someone else's before we ask for what we need. Help and empathy and kindness and presence are not limited resources. We shouldn't approach our needs or the needs of others, for that matter, with a scarcity mindset. Maybe, uh, as we are uh, good Southern people or good Southern transplants, uh, we have been taught to keep our business to ourselves. Problems are private, after all, and I would hate to give anyone cause to gossip. Or we've been overly taught the virtue of complete self-reliance. I am a fiercely independent woman who does not need help from anyone. The only person that I can really rely on is myself. Uh, To which I might suggest, as Pastor Amanda said, that even Jesus needed a team of people. Jesus needed to rest and to unburden himself in times of strife. Maybe we believe that we must always put other people first. And that's pretty standard Christian behavior, right? We model Christ who came not to serve, but to be, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. 
I remember in college hearing certain Christian circles saying things like, God first, other second, and me third, which on the surface makes sense, right? Like, it's good to put God first, and it's good to put other people before ourselves, but when you dig into that, if you adopt that as your mantra for life, it's easy to see how it can suggest that your needs, your well-being, it's not a priority. And not only is it not a priority, it doesn't actually matter. To which I would refer you back to my previous statement about Jesus and remind us that we are not, in fact, Jesus. So asking for help is like, okay. Maybe, you know, we're worried that when we express our needs, we'll become isolated. It will make us different from everyone else. People won't know what to say to us when they know what we need, so maybe they'll start to avoid us. We don't want people to treat us differently once they hear what it is we need, and I understand that fear. Vulnerability is a a scary thing. It opens us up for scrutiny and shame, to which I would add um, that maybe, just maybe, it offers us the opportunity for connection a place away from bearing things alone. Perhaps it reveals to us that we are not the only ones who feel this way. Um, In one of my favorite films, The History Boys, uh, one of the main characters is discussing this ancient poem with his teacher. David is enduring the stress of trying to get into Oxford while he's also wrestling with his sexuality. He's got a lot going on. And so it surprises him when he finds this connection with this old poem about a soldier, someone that has truly no connection to him at all. But he expresses how he feels connected to the words of the poem. And so his teacher says to him, the best moments in reading are when you come across something, a thought, a feeling, a way of looking at things, which you had thought special and particular to you. Now here it is, set down by someone else, a person you have never met, and someone who is even maybe long dead, and it is as if a hand has come out and taken yours. In expressing what we need, in asking for what we need, there is a chance that we will find someone who can reach out and take us by the hand. All of that to say that Paul, in his directness, in his name-calling, is not off the mark. He isn't cringeworthy. He shows us that we are able to ask for what we need. We don't have to be cagey. We don't have to be passive. We don't have to try to be a hero when it comes to asking for help. He also challenges us to hear other people's needs, to really listen when they ask, and to listen without judgment. It's easy to listen to Paul asking for what he needs and say, like, wow, he really hates that coppersmith guy or Paul is kind of maybe a bully, but if you listen, what you hear is that Paul feels alone, and what he needs are people that care about him. So Paul invites us to ask for what we need and then to listen to what other people need. Our two passages this morning, they give us different experiences of need. We have Job who has experienced this unimaginable loss with his friends at his side, having his needs met without having asked for anything. And Paul, who is in a tough spot, perhaps of his own making, he is certain and he is clear and he is asking for what he needs. So then we put Job and Paul together, and as different as they may feel, they remind us that everyone's needs are different, that it is right and good to ask for what we need, 
that we ought to be asking people what they need and then listen to what they say, and that being present for someone is the first and best place to start. Now, I have to admit that I know that this is not entirely dissimilar to the sermon that Pastor Amanda preached last week. Uh, The Venn diagram of experiencing hurt and having needs is basically a circle. Um, Hannah and the hemorrhaging woman, Job and Paul, they all have pain, they all have need. But I think it bears repeating because this is absolutely critical to the work of the church. The church has to be, and I mean has to, it must be a place where needs can be expressed and where needs can be met. If the church isn't a place where you can lay down your burdens, if it ceases to be a place of sanctuary, if it sits silent and idle in the face of need, then like, what, what is the church doing? The church has to create a space of welcome and safety and invitation so that folks feel like they can ask for what they need. The church ought to be a place that prioritizes authenticity over experience, uh, appearance, authenticity over appearance. Nadia Bowles-Weber, she wrote about planting her church in Denver, and it was cool and edgy and authentic and welcoming, and she knew, she knew that it was going to attract the coolest Christians in the city to come worship there, but by being cool, edgy, authentic, and welcoming, she found that she was leading a community of quirky, bordering on weird, sometimes broken people who often found themselves at the margins of society which is exactly what she should have expected and was, as she discovered, exactly the church that she wanted. So how can we be a community uh, that invites people to be honest about what they need? Are we willing to ask that question? And then more importantly, are we willing and able to hear their needs clearly? Are we prepared to meet their vulnerability with action? Can we release our expectations and our judgment and our fear so that we can meet people where they are? The work will ask each of us to be vulnerable, to be authentic. Uh, so, So I'll start. I will ask the question first. What do you need? Maybe we could go for a walk later. We can talk or not if that's what's better for you. Could I bring a meal by your house later? Would it be helpful for you if I picked the kids up tomorrow? I would love to pray with you. Is that okay? Know that even when I'm not sure what to say, I would still like to be there with you. And know that you are never, ever alone. Amen.